0: Awesome. We have uh, Lisa Schatzman uh, with the Legal Accountability Project here today on the most recent uh, episode of the Newfangled Lawyer podcast. I'm super excited to have her here today because she's another kind of shoe wearing uh, attorney, which I absolutely love. Um, And it's been really helpful to me. Um, I was telling her before we started the podcast, like it's really encouraged me to start doing the same thing. So um, uh, me, I, too, have started wearing uh, colorful shoes and adding to that collection. But really, really why I'm so pumped about this is Eliza has just kind of blown open the the narrative around what we expect um, and what we think we should be doing and how we can have a plan and it literally just blows up in our face, um, just completely out of our control and how you can pivot and turn this really, what have could have been a horrible um, experience. Um, and I'm not gonna try to steal the spotlight or uh, assume anything, but uh, we'll get into it. So I'll turn it over to you to give an introduction of yourself.
1: Cool, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm Aliza Schatzman. I'm the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. Uh, we're a nonprofit that works to ensure that more law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to the ones who don't. I founded the nonprofit following my very shitty clerkship experience in order
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> future law students would have better ones and will be able to make an informed career decision about clerking. Because, spoiler alert, Regardless of where you go to law school right now, you cannot make an informed career decision about this very consequential first legal job. And the Nike kicks come with me to all of my law school events.
0: (laughs) Which I love. And how did you decide to start doing that, the Nike kicks?
1: (laughs) So I designed those in high school when I spent a lot of time in Nike gear because I ran cross country and played golf. And then when I was thinking about, like, all the events I'd be doing last year at law schools, I was like, well i'll wear kind of you know work clothes but a little bit of flair and they seemed like they worked and now they've been to like 30 law schools
0: (laughs) and what what has been the receptivity of your colorful colorful kicks
1: it's been incredible people think they're awesome it's great um it's great
0: it's like your signature look
1: it really is yeah
0: I, i i see a future uh nike collaboration
1: I want to if they want to stop
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you never know you never you never know what he will be up to next you have no idea um and so you know you're you're on this kind of journey here and it didn't start that long ago but you've kind of like snowballed <laughs> like you've just like exploded on the scene and so can you just like, Tell tell us your story because I don't want to steal it. I I could do a really shitty rendition like synopsis chat GPT probably could do better. So um, how did how did you get here?
1: Yeah, it is. It has been quite a journey over the past couple of years. So I graduated from WashU Law in 2019. I aspired to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So I decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court, the place where I intended to practice law during the 2019 to 2020 term. The messaging around clerkships on law school campuses, including at WashU Law, is just uniformly positive. Mm. Students are told they will develop this lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with the judges for whom they clerk; that the position is going to confer only professional benefits. Nobody, before I started talking about this, was talking about the downsides to clerking, the enormous power disparity between a fresh out of law school clerk and their first job, totally dependent on somebody for a reference and career advancement, and a life-tenured federal judge, the most powerful members of our profession, that makes it incredibly difficult to speak out in the face of workplace mistreatment. The fact that law clerks outrageously are exempt from Title VII They cannot sue their harassers and seek damages. And the fact that judges have enormous power over their former clerks careers.
0: So are you saying, so are you saying this is when I talk about this with my wife, she's like, you're telling me that a judge basically can do basically whatever they want and nothing will happen. A federal judge.
1: Judges are really above the laws they enforce right now, though there is legislation called the Judiciary Accountability Act that would correct this injustice. But yeah, when we send the message that judges are never disciplined, it sends a message that they are untouchable, which is Mm. dangerous and outrageous. Mm. Um, And when we tell law clerks that they should stay silent in the face of mistreatment, that the right professional decision is just to keep your head down and move on, we are continuing to not hold judges accountable because the first step toward accountability is filing a complaint, sharing your experience. That is the only way to hold judges accountable. So it's, like,
0: uh, it's like it's like through the power of narrative.
1: It is exactly yeah.
0: And, so and, yeah, you go. You keep going. Keep going. Don't want to <laughs> don't don't want to don't want to stop the thunder. You're on a roll. So
1: no. So. So that was kind of how I perceived clerkships when I started mine, like accept the first clerkship you're offered. This is the gold star. It's a necessary checkbox. All right, great. I'm clerking. So I started this clerkship in August 2019 and it goes downhill really fast. Um, The judge I clerked for began to kick me out of the courtroom, telling me things like I made him uncomfortable and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was bossy and aggressive and that I had personality issues, stuff you'd never say about a man. No. Um, you would never,
0: never get away with it.
1: No, you wouldn't. You, would. No. Um,
0: you, you wouldn't even attempt it. I don't even think most judges wouldn't even attempt that level of just outright hostility.
1: I mean, I see plenty of male and female judges mistreating male clerks, but the gendered aspect is definitely a male mm. judge, female clerk thing. Mm. So, day I passed the DC bar exam, this is October 2019, big day in my life, obviously. He chooses this day to call me into his chambers, get in my face, and say, You're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. Oh, God. And this was just. Devastating. I mean, this is my first job out of law school. This dude is singling me out for mistreatment. Um, I wanted to be reassigned to a different judge. My workplace didn't have an employee dispute resolution plan that might have enabled that to happen. And I knew I needed a year of work experience to be eligible for my dream job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. The reason I had accepted this clerkship. So confided in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out, and I tried. During the pandemic, March 2020, uh, we transitioned to remote work. I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and work remotely. The judge ignores me for six weeks, calls, texts, emails, unanswered. He's communicating with me exclusively through my co-clerk. And then he calls me up in late April and he tells me he's firing me because I, lacked respect for him and made him uncomfortable but he didn't want to get into it
0: and when you try to seek clarity on what uncomfortable meant it was just i can talk about that
1: that's correct yep i'm, I'm not gonna, not gonna, gonna
0: tell i'm not gonna give you the professional or personal courtesy <laughs> of providing any details at all
1: that's correct yep And nobody was going to hold him to it. Nobody was going to say, well, you need to provide a reason for this. So, yeah, it was remote work and it was the pandemic. And so I reach out to HR and they said there's nothing they can do. HR doesn't regulate judges. And I should have known that I was an at-will employee.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for informing me of this very simple thing. Okay.
1: (laughs) So then I reach out to my law school, favorite part of the story, WashU Law. I'm seeking, I don't know, advice, support. Find out this judge had a history of harassing his clerks that law school administrators, including several professors and the clerkships director who still works there advising students on clerkships to this very day, knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, decided not to share that with me because they wanted another Washington student to clerk. So this is all very devastating. It takes me a year to get back on my feet. I'm applying for jobs, but questions are answered like, why did your job end early? And why isn't the judge listed as a reference? Um, The judge had agreed to give me a neutral reference if contacted, but I wasn't going to risk that.
0: Oh, yeah. Why would you do that? I mean, (laughs) it's like playing playing with fire. Attorneys were, were risk averse. Why would you? That's like in like inviting disaster.
1: Yeah. So a year later, I accept my dream job in the U.S. attorney's office, move back to D.C. summer of 2021, intending to put this behind me. I am two weeks into training. I had already started working there when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. The USAO told me the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. So I remember crying on the phone with USAO leadership, DC courts leadership. They wouldn't tell me what the judge had said. They said the decision was final. So I filed a judicial complaint and I hired attorneys and I participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through that, we found out the judge was on administrative leave, pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he'd filed the negative reference. The U.S. Attorney's Office was never alerted to those circumstances. The judge was removed from the bench for other reasons in the fall of that year, January 2022, pursuant to the terms of our private settlement. So separate from anything the judiciary can or would do for a law clerk the former judge issued a clarifying statement to the USAO, addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims. But by then the damage had been done and I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And I now share this experience a lot in legal scholarship, public forums, law school campuses. And what I always seek to underscore is that my negative clerkship experience is not rare, but it is one that is rarely shared publicly. Due to the culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And how this connects to what I'm doing now is that I became aware while I was going through the judicial complaint process, summer 2021, that law clerks are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. There was legislation that had just been introduced, the Judiciary Accountability Act, that would correct this injustice for 31,000 federal judiciary employees. So I reached out to House and Senate offices involved with that legislation to share my experience and advocate for the bill. When a House Judiciary hearing occurred in March 2022, I submitted written testimony sharing my experience and advocating for the legislation. And in the weeks following it began to throw around some ideas to further my advocacy work on behalf of clerks, which eventually inspired me to launch the nonprofit to correct injustices I personally experienced as a law student and a law clerk.
0: Wow. That is so much in such a short period of time, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been quite a journey and it's just uh, getting started. So I mean,
0: you're just beginning. I mean, you're just, you're just starting on this. I mean, can, so you, I mean, one of the themes that, that I think just comes out of this is how you turned a super, what could be perceived as uh, a negative, right? Just a negative devastating thing that stopped your career. You've flipped that on its head and just said, no, this is not my calling. So can you speak about kind of how this has uh, like impacted you or how you've interacted with this kind of duality of like the worst possible thing that could have happened, the worst possible outcome? You did everything within your control to achieve the desired outcome and it didn't happen and how you pivoted from that what has that experience been like?
1: Such a great question. It is enormously gratifying and empowering every single day to do this work because law clerks, current and former attorneys, just randos who've heard me speak, reach out every single day to thank me and confide in me. And that is amazing. Every time I share my experience, which is literally every single day, for me, it is a mode of accountability. Even though I received no accountability through the judicial complaint process. I'm out there sharing this experience. The former judge is quiet. He is no longer on the bench. This is accountability for me. But it's also really challenging because in my work. I work with law schools and the judiciary critiquing systems where I have to and collaborating with them where I can. Mm. And while the response overall has been amazing from many segments of the legal community, The number of clerkship directors and deans who say friggin' outrageous shit to me, like (laughs) work with only good judges, everybody has a positive experience. And from WashU, it's our official policy not to warn students about judges who harass their clerks. And
0: that's that's their official policy. (laughs) What what a heck of a policy.
1: Hey, we're we're
0: going to feed you to the barracudas, but we're just calling them fish. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to tell you what kind of fish.
1: So that, yeah, I mean, other I think some other law schools, that is their unofficial policy, too. So clerkship directors, mm-hmm. one has been telling, two have been telling people, I want to, quote, abolish clerkships. We got somebody, a couple people telling me law clerks, most of them just want to keep their heads down and move on. One said she doesn't believe harassment is happening. It's just women adjusting to their first jobs, like outrageous things. Wow. And they are never held accountable for that. And I continue to try to work Mm. with them every single day, despite the fact that that is so grating to hear. And I know that law students are gonna go another year without desperately needed resources. More law clerks will be harassed this year. Um, So there is definitely a duality. And I've said a couple of times before on podcasts, like I don't see there being a tension between doing the work I'm doing now to improve judicial clerkships and encouraging students to clerk. But it is definitely challenging because there are certainly places I would never recommend somebody clerk in, a courthouse for a specific judge. And I worry that there are so many law school professors, admins, attorneys messaging that like a challenging clerkship euphemism for harasses their clerks, negative experience mm. is worth it for the prestige. Uh, uh, the trash messaging is still in the water. Mm. We are never going to solve these problems.
0: Mm. So You'll like this. You'll like this. I call, I call it the brotherhood and sisterhood of misery,
1: <laughs> you know?
0: And if it's not shitty, if it's not the crappiest experience you've ever had, was it worth it? Was it, did it, did it, um, you really have a, a challenge to overcome. Was it just uh, despairing enough? Did it did it call you into question your own humanity? If not, then maybe the legal profession is just not for you. Like this is tough work, and I just don't buy into this. Now you know what you're experiencing, like this feedback loop, right? Yes. Is that is that and, and I don't want to be like, Oh, the systems in which we operate in are all broken. Cause they're not. And I think there's some cool people like you and some other people and even academia doing some really cool stuff. But historically, historically to become a professor, you did a clerkship for one of these judges. Then you went and worked at a law firm that had a culture that reflected kind of this don't ask, don't tell. This like, no, that partner is really hard to work with. That partner is harassing. We're just not even going to talk about it. Everyone just accepts that norm and that person acts that way. And no one's going to question it because it keeps the whole system floating. And the second you pull out a linchpin or start poking holes in any of this kind of feedback loop, it starts failing. At least that's how it's perceived what i hear you saying is actually not at all we could have we could have something better why not get something better
1: yes i mean i know that i am advocating for very disruptive change in clerkships the judiciary and the legal profession but it is beyond time for change the clerkship system is broken the legal profession is broken and yes Law professors who had negative clerkship experiences for these notorious harasser feeder judges perceive themselves to have benefited. Mm. I have never understood why somebody would want to suffer in silence. It is accountability to speak out against injustice and to disrupt the status quo. And for anybody who's remaining silent and is not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. If you are funneling people into clerkships with notorious harassers, you are part of the problem, and we're changing the culture now. I mean, transformational change is here; it is coming. It's on these law school campuses. It's in the profession. I am not going anywhere. It's in
0: the well, and it's in the students too.
1: It is. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's coming for uh, what I keep saying is that we aren't ready for the amount of change that's coming to the profession because of the people entering the profession are, are different. What they, what people care about is hopefully different than just prestige or money or, you know, kind of the systems that feed it. Um, Yeah. At least that's maybe uh, an audacious dream
1: (laughs) idealized,
0: but that's at least that's my hope.
1: So I interface with a lot of law students working to empower them to demand change, to galvanize them, to get these initiatives over the finish line on their law school campuses. Um, And I would say it's decidedly mixed. Hmm. There are definitely students who are very empowered to demand change. Now, there are some who are, I worry, way too fearful of pissing off the administration. And I know as I am coming to them and saying, Advocate that your administration do something they're probably not ready to do. They perceive themselves as benefiting from the status quo. These law students have to keep going to this law school for another couple of years. They need the clerkship director's help. They need the dean's help. So there are some student leaders who are very empowered. There are some law schools that are quelling dissent. And look, my message to them is, I know that these clerkship directors are maintaining a fucking chokehold on the clerkship messaging on their campuses. Some of them do not want me there talking about, you know, the full range of clerkship experiences. That should be the biggest of red flags when you cannot have me sharing my experience work on ah, your campus and still get people clerkships yeah. in the T14. you doing something wrong. And I am so sick of this chokehold on the messaging.
0: Well, and it has to do too is, uh, so couple things there. it's um I like how realistic you are because there is this narrative of this this younger group of kids coming out of law school they just like don't give a shit about any traditions or the way things are done. They're just coming in they they don't care but but your experience has, yes. is something different. Yep. and we have to trust people's experiences also. Also, one of the fundamental things we learn, not only in law school, but as attorneys, is just because you don't like the facts doesn't mean you can just ignore them. You can't ignore bad facts. And so it just seems just kind of this uh, conflict of saying, well, we just don't like the bad facts that are coming back to us. Let's just ignore the bad facts. And only look at the the pearly facts, but that's not how we are even taught to analyze a situation. And so then it just creates distrust or it creates kind of this environment where, like you said, of silence, when in actuality, that's never how justice works, is through silence. and so and so the question I have is, Have you, have you always been just like, I'm going to kick ass and take names (laughs) later? Or is this like a evolution or?
1: So I've always been like a move fast and break things type of person. And when I think about my clerkship experience, like I am clearly an assertive person, former judge, quiet, thoughtful, methodical, was not going to be a good fit. And if I had more information going in, I could have known that made informed decision. So I've always been very assertive. I remember like as an undergrad and between college and law school, like I interned and worked on the Hill. So I'd go a lot of networking events. There were all these events that I found weird about like empowering women to like assert themselves in a room. And I was like, I've just walked in and taken my seat at the head of the table. Like, what are you talking about? Like women never liked that about me, that I was assertive, that I just walked to the front of the room and I just raised my hand. So always been this way.
0: (laughs) And, and I mean, it's, um, it's, serves you now.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, yes, I think I am the right person to do this work. Um, I try to bring a lighter touch to it when I can, when I'm interfacing with some admins, deans and clerkship directors who I know are cautious. I think my personal experience is what got me in the door last year, And now it's about smoothing over some some of those relationships. I mean, we took strong tactics last year. We were quite critical of law school administrations, who I continue to think are part of the problem. But back a year ago, 15 months ago, we were talking about ideas, potential solutions. Now the solutions are here. Our centralized clerkships database is a working legal tech product. We are now the largest independent repository of post clerkship surveys, by law clerks across the country. We have more. That's directors. wild.
0: That's wild. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hi, and when did you launch this? When did you launch this? We, like,
1: um, Five months ago. Five get months out of ago here. I mean, yeah. We collected more post clerkship I mean, surveys in five months than most T14s collected in decades. So we are just shattering expectations. But now it's here. Mm. And now I need to smooth over the relationships with some of those clerkship directors who I criticized. So I work hard. And how,
0: and how, how are you doing people. that? How are you doing that?
1: So we're doing law school programming again this year. And so I am circling back with admins whose campuses I'm gonna be on to schedule meetings. I'm also reaching back out to demo the database and to talk them through it. Not everybody wants to respond to my emails. So sometimes we need a friendly alum, a board member, a judge to help make the intro. There's still one or two deans who are not responding to my emails, but we'll get to them. Um, and I try to be clear. I am critiquing systems that I know are unjust. I am not criticizing people personally. Though so I can think of a large handful of clerkship directors who deserve to be personally criticized. Sure, sure, <laughs> um, sure. We now have a solution and now it is here. And it's like, why are you turning down a solution that would give you more information about more judges to foster more beneficial clerkship experiences?
0: A free, is it a free resource?
1: It is not. It's a subscription model. So,
0: tell me. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah. So the clerkships database, we're charging law schools $5 per student per year based on their total JD enrollment. Smallest schools, $3,500. Largest schools, $8,000. So it's a range. Most schools will pay about $4,500. We are willing to negotiate price with any law school that has a legitimate price concern because we want as many law schools as possible to do this. Now the sure. friendly ones engage with us, regardless of price, the skeptical ones <laughs> are not going to engage with me, even if it's for me.
0: Sure. 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 It's so, it's self. does that, does that, do you think skew the data that question. you're then receiving so, if, if kind of once again, we're talking about feedback loops, if yeah. the schools that are supportive of what you're doing, they must good. be putting people in clerkships that would maybe respond that confirms what you're saying or denies what you're saying or what have you.
1: So I think every law school, now there are some schools that are doing better than others. Every law school continues to send people into bad clerkships. Now they are not all doing it nefariously, <laughs> but sure. they all continue to do it because there's just not enough information. Yeah. So the way we are getting post clerkship surveys right now is really innovative Um, We have created lists of law clerk alumni's email addresses using publicly accessible information and alums who are helping us reach out. We're putting their name on the outreach. We are doing this with more than 20 law school's alumni. And we are just cold emailing these people saying, hey, I'm an alum of your law school, I clerked, you did too, please fill out this survey. And we've collected hundreds and hundreds. We're going to hit a 1,000 soon, survey responses, just doing this cold outreach. In five months? Yes. I want to be clear. We've done this without a single law school lifting a fucking finger to help us do this. This is just me creating these lists with my interns and doing this email outreach at 7 a.m. every morning for five months. That's (laughs) true.
0: This is...
1: (laughs) Causing the expletives to come out in me here. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, no. So, can you can you speak to because I'm really fascinated by this because so many attorneys get caught in kind of this um, attachment, right? Yeah. You you had this goal of something very specific. Yep. And now here you are. Um, do you feel as though this is your calling? Do you feel as though you missed out on this other thing? What exactly. is how does this make you like feel?
1: So not to pull the like Beto O'Rourke, like I was born to do this work. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Beto's great. Um, I no, I do think my calling was to advocate for change on the national stage. I, mm. I do always think I was born to do something like this. Now an opportunity presented itself and I seized it. And I continue to seize it, recognizing the path would be very hard. We'd have to raise a shit ton of money. We'd have to push up against these huge systems in the legal community that are notoriously unwilling to change. And we would need to do it quickly. Um, So I do not. You know, there are times when I'll watch like legal shows on TV and sometimes I'll be a little sad that I will never be trying homicide cases but do I think? Do I wish I were practicing law? I'm like, Definitely not. When I see what the legal profession is like, just mm-hmm. the culture of silence and fear and caution. I mean, mm-hmm. if I had known the legal profession was so cautious, I probably would have gone to B school. I probably would not have gone to law school if I realized. <laughs> what I
0: was
1: doing. Yeah.
0: Um <laughs> you know how many? It's it's really it's um, and you're someone who and correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is like you you knew you wanted to be an attorney with the utmost clarity and from a from when did you have that determination like i'm going to be an attorney
1: from college i wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator i interned at planned parenthood and knew that i wanted to advocate on issues i knew to be unjust so yeah
0: you so what kind of work do you do like on yourself that you have this amount of clarity and can speak so comfortably about yourself?
1: (laughs) I mean, I spend a lot of time in my own head, (laughs) (laughs) but I work like seven hours a day, eight days a week. So there's not much time to think. I'm like always doing
0: something. You just go, go, go.
1: Yes, I have to, which I know, you know, is not setting the most positive example for like, health in the profession, but but I have to, you know, I am running this nonprofit, we are doing legal tech, it is an enormous haul. I do this work by myself with some interns and a great board. But at the end of the day, I am the decision maker, I need to make this thing go. And these are tough calls every single day. And for the handful of people who are at all offended by my level of disruptive change, I would say, you are not in the trenches doing this work every day. Coming, receiving the onslaught of potential hostility from some law schools, receiving the outpouring of private support from people who are never gonna speak publicly, doing really emotionally taxing work every single day. And I think the people who are resistant to change, a handful of law school clerkship directors and deans, don't even understand the judiciary as much as they think. Because I interface with judges every day and many of them perceive law schools to be bad actors, so there is a real disconnect there. I'm trying yeah. to write the disconnect. Everybody can work symbiotically to improve the profession, improve the judiciary. Um, but I spent what a lot. Is, of- what is the what yeah. has
0: been the judicial receptivity? You, you've spent a lot of time talking with the yeah. law schools, but what what are the, how do the judges feel about this that you've talked to?
1: Judiciary response has been great. It has been better than the law school response, candidly, which surprised me. Um, A lot of judges are very supportive of this type of transparency and DEI work. They know there's not enough information for law students to make an informed decision. They know they can't make informed hiring decisions. They want more, better, more diverse applicants. They know their pool is constrained by who applies, and that is white males from some t5 some t14 law schools sent to them by t14 white male law professors like the pool needs to be improved most judges know it is time for change so the response has been great and we have a lot of judges conveying support publicly reaching out to law schools to convey support schools they went to schools they hire from for any judge who wants to do that we're always looking for more judge supporters We have a judge on our board of directors who helps me think through these issues every day.
0: It's amazing. You said, you said you, you work a bunch, but this isn't, doesn't really seem like work. I mean, it is, it's hard, but you're like so passionate about it. I mean, Grant. Grant, this is going to be audio, but for anyone who has the opportunity to see you like in person, you're like literally could like jump (laughs) through the screen. It's (laughs) like, honestly, it's very rare to meet an attorney who is so passionate about their thing that they're doing, whatever it is.
1: Or something about the legal profession and who's no, in it. Is
0: no, is that, is that, well, well I think there's plenty of people that start off wanting to be attorneys for a particular reason. It's usually something that has to do with justice or fairness or equality or, or writing some kind of wrong. Some kind of systematic or societal wrong, and some some way along the line, you know, right? They say like, well, you become jaded, you become disenfranchised, you be you you wake up, you wake up. But what I just really find refreshing about you is you did wake up. You are seeing what it is, and you weren't just like, well, screw this, and walked <laughs> away. You didn't just yeah. you didn't just walk away. You were like, no, yes. I'm going to take this determination this this passion i have and i'm literally going to take this box i'm going to shatter it on the ground and say maybe we don't need a box anymore maybe we don't May, and it's not that we don't need courts and that we don't need clerkships it's just that the box that this was operating in no longer serves anything and maybe never did and i you know and i'm the I'm right there with you. It's like right now, um, people are like, with your law firm, how do you get away with this stuff? And I'm like, because, well, one, I have the privilege, and this is one of the things I've been acknowledging. It's like, I have the privilege, you know, I have the privilege to wear a backwards hat. I have the privilege to talk how I want to talk. I have the privilege to, with my legal profession, with my law firm, do what I want. And it's not without consequence, but it's, I don't have the same scrutiny. It's not like anyone's DMing me on LinkedIn being like, you're, you're an asshole. You're, you're calling into question how everyone else is an attorney, you know, but some people that's their experience, you know, is is. that, is. is that almost like there's this vitriol for anything that's different than what has been the normative traditional standard
1: yes and i think it is probably important for me to recognize the privileged position i am in to be doing this work and saying what i'm saying and really not getting too much blowback i wrote recently that we need a me too movement in the judiciary and as i watch me too movements in other areas of the profession the blowback is typically a lot i really haven't faced that i appreciate that i haven't. Um, But I really want to empower more people to share their experiences. There is so much fear and that bothers me deeply. And Mm. I know that I need to be more sensitive to people's fear that they are in a profession where they feel like they can't speak Mm. out, that their careers and reputations are at risk. I mean, I guess I kind of tossed my career and reputation and said, you know, (laughs) screw it. Let's do something different. Um,
0: And And what did that and what did that get you?
1: A lot of benefits. I think it's empowering to speak out. The response has been fantastic. You get um, to be
0: yourself. You I to- do.
1: Yes. Which I think means a lot and is worth a lot.
0: Yeah. What does that mean to you? To be able to be yourself day in and day out.
1: It is everything. It is everything. To be able to talk about the issues I care about. To share my perspective. And to see the positive response from everybody like on social media. And reaching out. And speaking with me. I mean, I am sharing a perspective that nobody has shared before me. I talk about clerkships and the judiciary like no one has done before. And by the positive response, it is clear that there is a hunger for candid dialogue around these Mm. issues. Mm. I started looking at the kind of clerkships dialogue on Twitter during the pandemic right after I was fired. There was a clerkship cycle. I hadn't spoken publicly yet and the the dialogue was just trash positive like all these wonderful lifelong mentorments you really like okay. some are but not all are and that's a real mm. disservice to law students going through the clerkship process clerks experiencing mistreatment i hadn't spoken publicly yet so i wasn't going to dive in like who's this eliza girl saying bad stuff about some clerkships
0: <laughs> you don't like, want to be the naysayer you don't want to be yeah. that, that's it, the thing is you yeah. don't want to be the first naysayer
1: I mean, yeah, but now.
0: (laughs) But now, but you're like.
1: Every day, yeah. Talk about my experience, talk about my opinions, share them, get support for them. It is important to be able to be myself and talk about issues I know need to change.
0: How has that helped you process the trauma of this experience?
1: It's a great question. So, went through the judicial complaint process. My complaint was dismissed, which was really devastating. Continue to pursue private settlement negotiations um, because I wanted to work in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I didn't really receive any formal redress. But sharing my experience every single day is empowering. It is cathartic. It helps me work through it. I mean, there are there are definitely still days when I you know feel some sadness thinking back mm. on everything that happened, and it's frustrating to me that the former judge was never held accountable for his misconduct. Um, but I think doing this work is how I process my own feelings about my clerkship experience, about the clerkship system generally. I mean, if I didn't care deeply about clerkships, the judiciary, the legal profession, I would go do something else. <laughs> like, what would you do?
0: What would you do if you I weren't don't... doing what you're currently doing?
1: Oh, my gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> um Probably something else entrepreneurial, seeing how this has gone, yeah. but like, I do this work because I want clerkships to be better, not because I want to abolish them.
0: You're not an anarchist.
1: I'm, um. I'm not. I'm working within the systems, but critiquing them as respectfully yeah. as I can. But when I talk about clerkships needing to change and the urgency of this work, it is my own urgency. It is a knowledge that what happened to me is happening to other people Mm. who are suffering in silence right now. And I know this to be true because people reach out every day to confide in me, but then they won't share their experience publicly. They won't file a complaint. I speak for them. I speak Mm -hmm. for the urgency of them when I speak on these Mm. issues.
0: Mm. Amen. I think I the amount of conviction you speak with is the wow i mean it's lazy i think it's lazy for uh anyone in the legal profession to take someone as yourself who speaks with such passion and conviction and say you're bossy that is lazy (laughs) we're wordsmiths i mean we particularly someone who is in a position of power um typically is somewhat smart knows how to use big words or at least concise words or true words and so you know the language that you decide to speak with in your word choice is very intentional um and you speak with such conviction so the thing i'm going to end with is what i always end with is what do you think and it means to be a newfangled lawyer
1: It means disrupting the status quo and making change in areas, you know, to be unjust. There are not enough people making disruptive change in the legal profession. I'm fortunate to be one of them. I'm going to keep disrupting the status quo because I know that it needs to change.
0: Mic drop. So, I mean, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, It's just amazing. So disruptors, uh, there needs to be more of us. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> there are a ton of us. This is, the, this is the wonderful thing that I've realized in doing this work is that there's actually more disruptors than I think we want to believe. The, the unfortunate thing is that many of the disruptors are introverts. Um, many of the disruptors um, don't haven't been given a platform or, like you said, a voice or a seat at the table and um just need more opportunity to do so so you're creating the opportunity which is awesome um if anyone uh, finds this podcast helpful please like and share and please go check out the legal accountability project um thank you so much for being here i've, I've greatly appreciated it
1: thanks for having me on the podcast
0: thank you